vice versa. And so we're trying to learn to speak each other's love languages a little bit better. And we've looked at uh, three so far. We've looked at uh, words of affirmation, quality time, and gifts last week. And today we're going to be looking at what it means to serve. And we're doing this because we want to know how to love better, right? We want to know how to, to love better the people around us, the people close to us, all the people uh, that we encounter. And the series we're going through kind of follows an outline of a series that John Ortberg had done a number of years ago. And in his message on this topic, I thought his take on the, the passage was so insightful and, and just beautiful the way that he described it um, that I, I wanted to let him share with us uh, some of those ideas uh, directly rather than me trying to reinterpret that and, and rethink that. And so uh, we're going to just take a look at some of his thoughts and then I'm going to come back and kind of wrap us up here at the end. Luke 9. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Mark 9. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about along the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. You know, the Apostle Paul once said, Serve one another humbly in love. That's why we decided to film this message in a home not my home, but a home, in a place where so much of our serving will or will not happen, because love serves. What you've seen on this video so far is pretty much a typical day for me in my wife's dreams. It's kind of odd. It's easy for me to study servanthood, read about serving, teach about serving, admiring serving, champion serving. I go to church and I'm deeply moved by what Jesus said about serving. I know I am pro-serving. Then I come home and I realize I'm for serving in every way except when it comes to actually serving. I think this was the hardest love language for Jesus to teach. This is the love language he kept teaching about from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the end. So we're going to look at a few of his teachings and then look together at how you and I can practice this love language of serving this week. Actually, one of Jesus' strangest and least popular parables is about just this topic. Jesus says to his disciples, Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. 
Now this story looks odd. Jesus is supposed to be Mr. Servanthood and Mr. Humility, and he tells this story to his disciples where the master doesn't even bother to say thank you to the servant. Actually, it's precisely because of his disciples' resistance to serving that Jesus tells them this story this way, and I think it's just brilliant. They all like to think of themselves as being number one on top, so he definitely begins by appealing to that mindset. He invites them to identify with the master. He says, suppose one of you has a servant. So now they get to imagine themselves as being top dog in charge. And then, in the context of how work took place in that day, he describes dealing with somebody that has an unwilling spirit. In our day, it would be something like this. Which of you, if you had a spouse, you both got home from work at the same time, the kids were sick, the toilet was stopped up, the house was a mess. If your spouse were to hang up their clothes and say, Hey, honey, look what I did. I hung up my clothes by myself. I put my socks in the hamper. I did all these things without being told. Take care of all that other stuff and fix me a steak to celebrate. Which of you would put up with a spouse like that? Or if you ran an office, one of your employees came in and said, Hey, I'm at my desk on time. I successfully executed my commute, my shoes match, my computer's turned on. I deserve a raise. It's time for a break. Now you, my so-called boss, you come do my job for me while I do nothing and get paid for it. See, Jesus, in the context of his day, is painting the scene of a vastly underperforming, entitled employee and asking the disciples, if you were in charge, would you put up with that? And all the disciples say, no way, I'd never put up with that. That guy would have to learn to do his job with a good attitude. And then... Jesus completely reverses the perspective and says to his disciples, So also you, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. In other words, disciples of mine, you're not the master. God's the master. You're the servant. Now that line, unworthy servants, doesn't mean they have a self-esteem problem. That's polite language in the ancient Middle East that means We will not regard ourselves as entitled or presumptuous or puffed up. Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to be great servants. And a great servant does not go around saying, look at me, applaud me, reward me. In fact, this parable actually points to one of the most important signs of growth in servanthood and in spiritual life in general. When you first obey God, for instance, if you first serve, it'll seem to you that you have done something heroic. Honey, I emptied the dishwasher. Get this on video. Call my mom. She'd love this. When people asked Mother Teresa why she served, she said she did it for the joy. It no longer looked to her like she was doing something heroic. Dallas Willard used to say, one of the signs of spiritual maturity are the thoughts that no longer occur to you. For instance, if somebody wrestles with alcohol, Their first day of sobriety will feel heroic for them. They may think all through the day how hard and unusual it is that they've stayed sober. After 20 years of sobriety, they don't think about it nearly as much. They are free to think other, more interesting things. Now, sobriety just looks like moral sanity for which they're grateful. Spiritual maturity is like that. See, love serves. Love looks for chances to serve. And where there's a serving problem, There'll be a love problem. 
Jesus teaches this all the time, and, and we want to actually practice serving this week. But one of the most unforgettable episodes involves a time when Jesus was invited for dinner to the home of a religious leader named Simon. I'm going to set the context a bit. As a visiting rabbi, Jesus would have been expected to be the guest of honor. And certain small acts of servanthood, of hospitality, would have been taken for granted. Part of the role that servanthood always plays in every culture is welcoming people. In Jesus' day, the customary greeting would have been a kiss. And if the guest of honor is a person of equal social rank, you'd kiss them on the cheek. If a child were greeting a parent or a student greeting their rabbi, you would kiss their hand as a gesture of respect. To neglect this was the equivalent of just ignoring somebody coming into your home in our day. Have them come into your home without even acknowledging their presence or shaking their hand. Then the washing of feet was mandatory before a meal. If you had a guest that was high status that you wanted to honor, you would wash their feet yourself. If not, you might have your servant do it, or you might even just give the guest the water to wash their own feet, but this would have been somewhat offensive. You might well also give them olive oil for anointing their head and skin because they lived in desert dryness. Now, in this story, Simon does not serve Jesus in any way. There is no greeting, no kiss, no washing of feet, no anointing of skin. And you have to understand, these are not subtle omissions easily overlooked. This was a deliberate slap in the face of Jesus. The tension in the room at this party would have been so thick you could smell it. A woman is present. Banquets in those days were kind of public affairs. They would happen in the courtyard of the well-to-do, and anybody could just walk up and watch and listen. And this woman does. But she's unexpected. She's a sinner. In fact, she was a prostitute. She was known as such in the village. Something was going on inside this woman. She had heard Jesus teaching maybe earlier that day. And something about Jesus struck something very deep in her heart. And she began to wonder, maybe, how in the world did I come to this? You know, nobody grows up thinking that's what they will do with their life. No young girl has that for her dream. Once she had been somebody's little baby, once she had been the object of her mother's hopes and dreams, and then things turned out all wrong. Maybe her husband had rejected her and this was the only way she could survive. Maybe it was just the easiest way that she was able to get money. But when she hears Jesus teach, it comes to her. She, right there in her life, is loved by God. God still thinks of her and longs for her as if she were his daughter. It's not too late, not even for her. And she hears that Jesus is at this dinner. Of course, you understand she would not be invited to this dinner in a million years, and she knows that. But she gathers all of her courage and she comes into the courtyard where the dinner's happening. She is trembling with fear, but she's overwhelmed by love. And then she watches this scene, and she sees how Jesus is treated by Simon, ignored and insulted, and she can't stand it. And her love and her devotion and her anger all well up to the surface. What could she do? Now, of course, she can't be the one to give Jesus a kiss of greeting. That would be incredibly presumptuous. You can imagine how the people around the table would interpret that. But then she has this idea, she could kiss his feet. Now to wash somebody's feet was an act of servanthood. To kiss someone's feet in that culture was an act of utter abasement, complete humility. 
So imagine the drama now. Jesus is reclining at table. In that day, generally, they didn't use chairs. He's reclining, leaning on an elbow, and his feet are facing away from the table. This woman walks towards him, and everybody is watching. Everybody knows who she is. She kneels down to kiss his feet. And she looks at Jesus. And instead of judgment or ridicule or embarrassment, there is only love. She has not seen that look in a man's eyes in a long time. Maybe never. And here she sees it in the eyes of the best man she has ever known. Who loves her, not as an object, but like a daughter, like a friend, like a sister. Loves her, not in the shadows, but in the light. And tears come to this woman. A few at first. And then more. And then before she can do anything, they're pouring down her face. Tears of sadness for what she has done. Tears of gratitude because Jesus offers forgiveness. Tears of joy because Jesus has filled her with this strange hope for her life. Jesus' feet, unwashed by Simon, are wet from this woman's tears. And she wonders, how can I dry them? There's no use asking for a towel. Simon would never give her one. So on impulse, she lets down her hair. Now, this is another shocking breach of etiquette in that day. A woman always wore her hair up in public. Uh, She never allowed it to hang loose in mixed company. It was actually considered um, too provocative for men to be able to handle. That's why a woman's hair would always be up. If a married woman let her hair down in front of any man other than her husband, it was actually grounds for divorce in that day. Everybody knew her profession. This is a woman who had let her hair down many, many times with many, many men. But now she was doing it one final time. This time she was getting it right. And with her hair, she wipes Jesus' feet. She had an alabaster jar of ointment. Most likely this refers to a flask worn around the neck as a kind of perfume for the woman. And again, because of her profession, this flask was quite important. But now she empties it. She will not need it anymore. Do you understand? She's pouring out her life. She cannot anoint his head. She's a sinful woman. He's a holy man. That would be presumptuous. She pours it on his feet. She kisses his feet over and over. Love serves. Now Simon is watching. This is not turning out at all the way he planned. And he says to himself, Jesus must not be it after all. If Jesus was even a prophet, he would know who this woman is. If Jesus was even a prophet, he would not let her touch him with a 10-foot pole. So Jesus tells a little story. Simon, two people owed money to a lender. One owed a small amount. The other owed a huge fortune. Neither had the money to pay him back. And he forgave them both. Who do you suppose loved him the most? Simon said, I suppose the one that was forgiven the biggest debt. And Jesus affirmed, yeah, it's the one who's forgiven most that loves the most. And then comes one of the greatest conversations in Scripture, and I wish I could convey the drama of it. So you have to picture this in your mind. The text says, Then Jesus turned toward the woman, and he said to Simon, 
Now, picture this. Up until now, the conversation had been between Jesus and Simon. Now, Jesus keeps speaking to Simon, but his eyes are locked on the woman, and her eyes are locked on Jesus. So imagine her just beaming under Jesus' gaze, her heart's pounding, filled with shyness and fear and unspeakable love. And everybody now with Jesus turns to look at her. She was going to serve Jesus. Now Jesus is going to serve her. Jesus is just that way. Jesus asked Simon, do you see this woman? Now Simon didn't. He saw an example of immorality or an object of contempt. He didn't see what Jesus saw at all. Jesus says to Simon, you gave me no water. Now Jesus is courteous. He doesn't even say Simon should have washed his feet, but at least he should have given him water. She bathed my feet with tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Somebody who considered himself Jesus' equal would at least have kissed his cheek. A disciple would kiss his hand. She has not stopped kissing my feet. I picture Jesus saying to the woman, Okay, you can stop now. Simon, you didn't anoint my head with common olive oil. She didn't anoint my head but my feet. And she didn't use something cheap. She poured out on me the best she had, the promise of a new life. Now, all this time, he's been looking at the woman and speaking to Simon. But now, for the first time, he speaks to her. Now, for a moment, it's as if it's just the two of them in that room and nobody else in the world. He looks at her and she looks at him. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. And her heart just explodes. You know, she was going to be Jesus' champion, and now he's hers. And then he has one more act of servanthood. How you say farewell, how you take leave of people was very important in ancient cultures. It still is, really. Jesus knows for sure Simon the host is not going to do that for this woman. So Jesus does. Go in peace. Shalom. End of story. Now, you have to understand, when Jesus told that little parable about the two debtors, Jesus was not saying to Simon, Simon, you're the righteous man. You have hardly sinned at all. You don't need much grace. Jesus knew there was a great sin defiling this room, but it's not the sin Simon thinks it was. It's the sin of lips that will not kiss, of knees that will not kneel, of eyes that will not weep, a heart that will not break, hands that will not serve. See, the greatest command is the command to love. That's why we're doing this series about the love language. And the greatest sin is the refusal to obey the greatest command. Simon, don't you see? You have the biggest debt of all. If only Simon could see it. If only Simon would fall on the ground beside this sinful woman and feel pain over his sin as she did over hers. Be overwhelmed that Jesus loved him anyway in the midst of his dark lovelessness. If only Simon's tears would begin to flow and mingle with hers and they could bathe the feet of Jesus together. See, she needed grace for a heart that was broken. He needed grace for a heart that was hard. And I want to tell you something. A hard heart needs even more grace than a broken one. And I just want to say to you, whether you're here with a broken heart, you have been beaten down and you feel wounded, whether you've got a hard heart and there's something inside you that is just stiff towards another person or where you have a difficulty extending grace to somebody, Jesus is still in the business of healing hearts. 
And he'll do that for you so you can love. And he's teaching his disciples about this, about the power of loving servanthood through his whole life, right to the very end. And I wonder if his disciples thought about that woman and this story on their last night with Jesus. They were gathered in a room. Jesus knew he was going to die the next day. And one more time, there's a problem around foot washing. The disciples have a little quarrel. Whose job is it to wash feet? Didn't anybody get a foot washer? Do I have to do everything around here the way that people kind of do? Um, in all the ancient world, there is no record of a rabbi washing the feet of his disciples, except this one. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, put a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with a towel. Whose job is it? Jesus says, it's mine, it's my job. Then he says to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So, who are you going to serve this week? Who in your life has that as their primary love language and they're just waiting? You know, it's very interesting. In our marriage, Nancy's primary love language is quality time. But at one point, we had three children all under the age of four. And during that era, this is often true for moms of young children, her primary love language became acts of service. And it was not just about getting tasks done. It was about the love that got communicated by my doing them. And it took me way too long to tie my action of serving to Nancy's feeling loved. And she finally said to me, John, do you understand, when I see you vacuuming, it makes me feel cared for by you. Like, when I see you do the dishes, it makes me feel kind of romantic towards you. When I see you bathing our kids, I actually feel desire for you. Guys, I used to bathe those kids three and four times a day. I'd come home at 10.30 at night. Kids, get out of the bed. Get in the tub. Nance, come here, quick, look. Now they're all gone. I've lost my secret weapon. All I have left is the dog. Hey, Baxter, get in the tub. Nance, come look. It's not the same. Uh, especially in the days when our kids were young, this is the love language that had the most power, but it was also the one that involved the most conflict. You know, being a servant is very different from being a doormat. And if you're in a relationship where you feel like you're simply being used or taken for granted or it's not a full partnership, it will probably take some courageous conversations. Um, Jesus knew he had to bust stereotypes about servanthood. The most prominent one in his day probably was leaders don't serve, the great don't serve. And Jesus knew that the practice of servanthood is maybe most important for people who find themselves in positions of power because our egos are so vulnerable to pride. Another stereotype that's still around is, it's the wife's job to serve the husband and make him happy and not vice versa. And some people even think that's actually like biblical. But you know, the Apostle Paul said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a little hard to get from Jesus loved the church by sacrificing his life for her to I'll love my wife by insisting I get to be in charge of the remote control. Guys, I got to tell you, there are a few dynamics I can think of that will strengthen marriages more 
than to be a church where husbands joyfully and intentionally serve. So you might want to ask that question if you're in a marriage or in a friendship, in a relationship. Scale them one to ten. Ask another person, how full is your love tank these days in our relationship? And what can I do to help get it to ten and then do it? Now, acts of service are not just about marriage and family. They're about where we live. They're about where we work. This week, you could wash somebody's car. You could fill it up with gas. You could go with somebody to the doctor. You could run an errand for somebody at work or ask somebody the next desk over, how can I help you? And then there is no place where this love language of serving is more important than in the church. The greatest among you will be your servant, Jesus said. Who's the greatest person at our church? I got an email this week from our children's ministries department who told me about a man in our midst who was in a tragic accident several years ago, suffered traumatic brain injury, and faces every kind of challenge and so many losses you can hardly imagine. Like if he had withdrawn into permanent self-pity, nobody could blame him. Instead, he comes every week he can to our church to volunteer to care for our three-year-olds. He works with other volunteers that he says are abnormally loving. And those three-year-olds flock to this guy like a character out of a fairy tale. They just love him. Jesus says, that's greatness. That's what greatness looks like in our church. And that's what greatness looks like in our church. We want to be known for extraordinary servanthood. One of the things I love about this this series is how practical it is. Like I was walking around Walmart yesterday going like, okay, I need to get something for, you know, it's like, there's things that we can actually do with this. And this is a great one. Every time somebody takes a step to volunteer, to serve, provide food, to, to visit people, teach, clean, welcoming, any of a hundred different activities around our church, it's what makes our church great. If you've never gotten involved in an area uh, of the church and you've been around the church for a while and you're you're a follower of Jesus and you're still kind of sitting in this, the bleachers spectating, it's time to get in the game. Be a servant, not a spectator. You're never more like Jesus than when you serve. Never more like Jesus than when you serve. So let's ask Jesus to help us speak that love language this week the way that he does.